Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let Me Tell You a Story. Hi, babe. Hi. Are you finished with that candy yet? Oh, they're pretty good. I might I might have another one. We'll do it now before we start. Have we started? Yes. This is the podcast? This is the podcast. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I have such an exciting story to tell you about. I worked really hard on this. It's good. There is so much to get into. So we should probably just get going. Can but you, Can you edit out all the stuff where I was chewing? That's disgusting. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> Absolutely can. Giacomo Colosimo was just a local 17-year-old knucklehead in Chicago when he decided to pursue his biggest passions in life, wealth and women. The wealth came easily because he was a criminal, and the women came easily because, well, he was wealthy, of course. He would go on to open hundreds of brothels in the city because women, obviously, and within just a few years, he was raking it in. With money, it came power, and Colosimo was soon enough running the underworld in Chicago. And when you've got that much money and power, there's always someone patiently waiting for you to slip up just enough so that they can swoop in and take it all from you. So babe, let me tell you a story about one man, his journey from the streets to the top of the underworld, and the men who ultimately betrayed him, launching a group of young city criminals into a brutal world of crime. This is the story of the Chicago Outfit. All right. You ready? What year is this? 1895, <laughs> I believe. Holy shit. Yeah, dude. Brothels, so that's good. I mean, the biggest, one of the most dangerous crime organizations in the world started with sex. It's kind of dope. It's the oldest profession, they say. Brotheling? Prostitution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been around for forever. All right, you ready? Yes. Giacomo Colosimo was a teenager when his father and stepmother decided to leave their native Italy, specifically the Calabria region, or the toe of the boot, <laughs> so you can picture it in your head. It's mm-hmm. good. Taking the teen with them. Because his birthday is only estimated, it's believed that Giacomo or Jim was about 17 years old when his family emigrated to the United States in the mid-1890s, settling down in Chicago, Illinois. Jim got a job delivering papers, as many teens did, and because that paid, like, nothing, he also dabbled in a petty crime here and there, a little pickpocket, you know? Again, like many teens did on the south side of Chicago in the 1890s. After the Great Chicago Fire, a lot of the nightlife had pushed into the south side of the city, so there was a lot of hustle and bustle and a lot of opportunities for a different kind of hustle, if you know what I mean. (laughs) What do you mean? <laughs> like <laughs> you said, hustle twice. Yeah, because because after the fire, right, the, like the northern side of the city had a lot of the nightlife, but then the fire happened. You know about the Great Chicago Fire, right? Mm-hmm. And the cow and the whole thing was it as great the as the Great London Fire, though? No, it was massive. But it was what bigger. about the Great London Fire? I, I don't think anyone's heard of the Great London. Everyone fire. in London's heard of it. All right, well, everyone in the world has heard of the Great Chicago Fire. I don't think I heard about it until I moved to the states. I think that's another oh, really? thing where, like, in the states, they're like world's best restaurant, world's greatest fire. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they're celebrating it. No, it was really bad. Obviously, I grew up in Illinois, so we learned about it. There was like a song. There was a song about it because. The it was blamed on a cow, you know, who knocked over a lantern, <laughs> like an oil lamp, but knocked over an oil lamp. And, and it's the this, cow's fault. 
Yeah, it was blamed on a cow. It's not like the guy who put a Yeah, well, it was also partially blamed on the cow's owner, too. But there was like a couple different stories. But I do remember learning a song. What's the song? I don't remember it now, Mm. but I do remember learning it. Can't be that catchy. And I remember being like second grade and having to draw pictures like for the song. It was really weird. (laughs) They have one for the London Fire. If anybody grew, grew up in Chicago. It's better. And they remember the song. Please email me because I'm curious. And there's a monument. Of the Great Chicago Fire? There's the a London Fire. Oh. It's well, a big tower. You that's can, because nothing happens can, in London. It's a big tower that you can walk up the inside of to the top. Wow. I thought it started in a theater. No. It says the fire killed approximately 300 people, destroyed roughly 3.3 square miles of the city, including over 17,000 structures, and left more than 100,000 residents homeless. I'm sorry, 300 people? Yeah. That doesn't seem like a lot. Yeah, it didn't kill as many people, but it was the amount of damage it caused. 17,000 structures in 1890. Where everything was made out of wood. Not even 1890. It was years before that. Um, 1871. Well, how about this? The Great London Fire, Great Fire of London... Great Fire of London, mm-hmm. 1666. Oh, my All God. the sixes. Do you know where it started? It started in a bakery in Pudding Lane. Oh, no. That's the most English thing I've ever heard. <laughs> the city determined that the fire destroyed an area about four miles long and averaging three quarters of a mile wide, encompassing an area of more than 2,000 acres. Destro- destroyed were more than 73 miles of roads, 120 miles of sidewalk, 2,000 lampposts, 17,500 buildings, and $222 million in property. Yeah, that's crazy. Which was a third of the city's valuation in 1871. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I just looked up the Great London Fire. Only six people died. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? That's what they recorded. So like I said, he got into a life of petty crime pretty early on. And he kind of just did that. He hustled. So that was where, where we landed. What I meant was there was a lot of hustle and bustle in the South Side in the years following the Chicago fire because the nightlife needed a new home, right? The clubs, the brothels, all the illegal gambling and whatever. Like that all needed a home and it got pushed into the South Side because the central part of the city and into the North part of the city were the most damaged by the fire. The South Side was spared a lot. But because of that, it got a lot of the under, what is it called? The underbelly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it got a lot of that. And that's kind of, it's kind of, you know, just kind of remained that way, I guess. The South Side, I think, gets a worse rap, a very general rap um, from outsiders. But, I mean, there are plenty of wonderful things about the South Side of Chicago. I just think in general terms, it's like how here people say like, oh my God, don't go to you know, like Compton, you'll die. You know what I mean? Where it's like, when you live here, you're like, what? Like, what are you talking about? That can happen anywhere in LA. So I think that it's very easy for people to generalize the South Side. But in reality, there is a reason that maybe some more shady things go on. And it's because of, of this. This is how it all started. Right. He also took a job working as a boot black or a shoe polisher at Working Man's Exchange Saloon a rough and rowdy bar on the South Side founded by Michael Hinkydink Kenna. <laughs> That's his nickname? Yes. Oh, That's his real middle name. No, <laughs> it's his nickname. So legend says that Kenna was barely five feet tall, and that's how he got the name Hinkydink. Hinkydink. 
Kenna not only ran the bar, though, he also ran the neighborhood because alongside John Joseph Coughlin, known as Bathhouse John, or sometimes just The Bath, the two held positions of the first ward's aldermen, and they were shady. So back in the day, the city used to have, like, each district had two aldermen, which is not how it was in later years. Mm -hmm. But at the time, they had two aldermen, and these two ran it. So you got, you got Hinky Dink Kenna. And bathhouse John. Uh, Coughlin used to be a masseur at a bathhouse, hence bathhouse John. Both pretty on-the-nose nicknames, if you ask me, though I do like the bath. And no, you may not start calling me Hinky Dink, just because it is used to refer to short people. They were known as the Grey Wolves, which was a term used to describe a whole group of corrupt aldermen who were known for boodling. Do you know what boodling is? Like grifting? Like... Like taking money off of people? Yeah, in exchange for oh, infrastructural yeah. uh, projects, yeah, so licenses. Greasing. They're literally like, what all gangsters do in like every movie. And the government and everyone in yes. <laughs> government contracts. But they were aldermen. So they were like, ah, yeah, no, you don't have to go through anyone else. You come through us. You want to build a new hotel or you, you got an underground illegal brothel, say? You would definitely have to pay... Alderman Hinky Dink, a visit at the Working Man's Exchange Saloon first. For a fee, he could make all your business ventures a reality. This is really, really bad <laughs> for a politician. And because old-timey people just clearly loved their nicknames, apparently, the pair had another one to add to their list of AKAs, the Lords of the Levy. The Levy was one of Chicago's most notorious vice districts or red light districts in is, the First Ward. Is it Levy or Levy? I don't know. Is it Levy? It's spelled L-E-V-E-E. -E -E. Yeah, I just think I Lords know. of the Levy sounds better. Could be Levy. I thought it was like Lords of the Levy, like they're taxing you to talk to them, you know? Like they're finding you a Levy. Oh, yeah, maybe. Maybe it's named after that. But I thought the Levy was just the name of the district before any of the bad stuff happened there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it could be Levy. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, we have checked. It is Levy. <laughs> I did like Lords of the Levy, though. I don't know. It just sounds more I think Lords sinister. of the Levy is way better. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's just because that's the way I've been reading it in my head. So, like I said, the Levy was one of Chicago's most notorious vice districts or red light districts in the first ward. Though the entire ward, honestly, seemed like it was all vice districts. Hell yeah. The Levy was just the most notorious, the most well-known. For years, reformers had tried to take down the vice districts all over Chicago, but corruption was rampant, and Hinky Dink and Bathhouse Coughlin, <laughs> through a protect and collect system, was able to help brothel owners stay in operation. So you pay us, we take this care of it. This is like old school gangster crimes. Like this is but how like aldermen. Yeah, but this yeah, but so what? This is like how you do it. What one? That alderman is like. Because there isn't really a proper government like, and council. Essentially, right? it's like the PTA of the neighborhood, right? It's like city council. But they, these guys had yeah. a lot of power. Yeah, because that's how it was in the mm -hmm. olden days, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they, they, were, they were the guys. Yeah. So for that reason, because of their protect and collect system, as other vice districts struggled to stay afloat, the levy did just fine and grew to prominence around the country and eventually around the world. There was a part of the levy called, they called it Little Cheyenne as a nod to um, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Because they were like, oh, yeah, Cheyenne's got a good uh, red light district. Let's call our, let's call this part Little Cheyenne as a nod to them. And it, as a result, 
Cheyenne called their red light district Little Chicago because they were like, you guys have it. This is not this is not heard of in this country. The Chicago red light district was beyond like it was beyond. Don't you just miss the days <laughs> when there were just brothels and drugs everywhere? I mean, I think it's definitely like reading the story. I'm like, wow, what an exciting time to be alive. Right. But in reality, it was so lawless and just it literally was like the Wild West, which is why it seems exciting to us. But I bet living at that time was awful. Also, I'm not white, so I can't I can never ever picture anything without the shield of being like, you're not white, you would have been treated like garbage. Because I read so many stories about how all the women of color had their own brothels and it was like 50 cents a go. And I was like, that's what a time to be alive. (laughs) For people like you who love their women. 50 of color. Cents. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, I always view like old timey stuff with that lens, which is sad because I'm always like, oh man, it would not have been, you know, it would have been really sad. But yeah, I guess, I guess in a more general sense, yes, it does seem like a great time to be No alive. cell phones. No one's snapping your picture, mm-hmm. going and going to the brothel or going mm-hmm. to play a game of poker and then stabbing a guy in the neck, you know, like. The, the night is yours. You have I complete just, freedom. Well, like normal people, like, right? Normal people. <laughs> were they just terrified all the time or were they just used to it? No, I think everybody was like that. Yeah, especially in this area. If you were going out at night in this area. You know what's up. You know that the guy next to you at the bar could be stabbed at any second. You know? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So as the levee grew to prominence, with it, Hinky Dink and Bathhouse also grew in power. And popularity. And that's because they really did take care of their community and not just the criminals. Because to stay in office, the men needed votes. And anyone who could be potentially swayed to vote in favor of the men could all but guarantee a free meal at the saloon or a helping hand here and there. Helping hand? Thing. What? No. Just a helping <laughs> hand. If you worked for them, basically, they'd work for you too. Honestly, they're kind of like, they run your like sleazy salesmen with alderman titles, you know? They're selling. They're buying votes. They're buying votes. They're not They're not selling anything. I mean, yeah, they are selling. They're selling to criminals, essentially. They're selling protection to criminals. And they're selling a false, this false kind of, like, we'll take care of you, all the regular people. And, like, so many articles I read said the Working Man's Exchange Saloon was, like, a welcome, like, welcome all indigents, all people who can't afford anything. Come on in. Like, they really, really schmoozed which is why i feel like they're kind of salesmen you know they're selling this image of themselves that just isn't a reality to normal day folks and then they're buying their votes essentially but with the criminals they just led a completely different life if that makes sense they had a totally different persona but people really like them because if you were a criminal they helped your business and if you were a regular person they just helped you yeah that makes sense yeah that makes total it's a good model <laughs> it is a good model <laughs> right. And they'd definitely provide for anyone with deep pockets or, of course, voting power. But if they genuinely liked you, you were pretty much set. Luckily for Jim, Hinky Dink liked his outgoing and easygoing boot black. And so he worked as Alderman Magic to score Colosimo a more lucrative job with the sanitation department as a street sweeper in the first ward. And as a thank you... Jim turned to his fellow young Italian immigrants, which was already a growing community in Chicago, and he said, Hey, you know what? Ken is pretty cool garnering new support for the aldermen. Once Colosimo had delivered new voters for Hinky Dink, well, that was that. Colosimo was set, and he was promoted to street cleaning supervisor. Jeez. Hell yeah. (laughs) 
His quest for wealth was well on his way, but he hadn't quite figured out his other passion, women. That was until he got into business with Hinky Dink's other super shady moneymaker, brothels. Jim quickly learned that Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John owned the levy and all of its dark underground dealings because it was, like I mentioned, because of them that all of these brothels were operating. And Colosmo was like, you know what? Boys, I like it over here. This is nice, very nice. A lot of women. I like women, so I like it here. And Hinky Dink was like, oh yeah, you, you like it? Well, I got a job for you if you want it. Bagman. Collect our payments from all the brothel owners. We get our money and you can hang out around here as much as you want. It was a win-win and obviously Jim was down. It was also around this time that Jim was appointed to precinct captain of the first ward, which is basically a direct link between politicians and voters. And it is supposedly an elected position, but obviously not in this case. (laughs) Um, I love that too. They're like, you know, he has a lot of connections. He is a young Italian immigrant. He has a direct in with that community. We need Italian voters to get to the polls. A lot of them are extremely foreign, you know? So they were like, this is great. Like, this community is growing by the second. And now we have this kid who's super friendly and outgoing and he likes us and he likes the brothels. Let's just give him whatever he wants and he'll deliver Italians to the polls. It's good. Mm-hmm. Good marketing strategy. Yeah, especially because once he started working in the brothels and all that stuff, he was also starting to grow in status. Like people knew who he was. They're like, ah, oh, it's Jim, you know? That's Hinky Dink's boy. So the more popular he got in the neighborhood, the more influence he had on voters. Right. And that is when the money really started coming in for Jim. Now, what does every young rich man want? More. They always want more. It's never enough money. Ever. Even when you're like apparently 19 or 18 or 19 years old. Hanging around all the vice districts so much introduced Jim to Victoria Moresco, which this is not my opinion though i did see pictures but this is what the article (laughs) said okay she was an obese old lady (laughs) jesus christ who ran her own brothel a dollar ago according to some reports a fancy joint oh yeah (laughs) and she really liked the new young bag man he was outgoing charming and animalistic apparently which i read in a report and also ew i was like what the f i hate (laughs) i hate that term like i'm just Attracted to his raw animal magnetism. Like, why do people say that? I feel like that's such an old-timey way of describing a man. Like, he's so animalistic. I'm trying to think of, like, a famous person who has it. Animal magnetism? Yeah. I don't think they make that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think they make it? Yeah, I don't know. And I don't, it's hard for me because I just don't, I don't get that description of a person. Whatever it was that Jim had going on, Victoria really liked it a lot. And she wanted to see more of him, so she offered him a position as manager of her brothel. And because she was an established madam who was really in with the vice life, Jim knew an opportunity when he saw it. He took the job, and he took her hand in marriage, Also, I read a lot of reports that when he took the job as manager, he basically became like a pimp, and he would promise girls jobs and then as soon as they got to chicago he would just sell them to her brothels and like other brothels in the area you know like there was a lot of 
sex trafficking happening that they just didn't even consider trafficking, you know? It was just, like, not even a thing. It was just, like, the way life was, which is also terrible. Two weeks later, they were married. They were the new it couple of the vice world, which is just really romantic. And it cannot be overstated, okay? Prostitution was rampant in Chicago. It was a big moneymaker for all involved, and rich white men had zero problem exploiting women for sex or money or both, including Jim Colosimo. Colosimo. <laughs> Colismo. <laughs> so he decided it was time for him to have his name on a brothel of his very own. Obviously, he needed to clear it with his pal Hinky Dink, who by 1902 was still running the streets. And of course, because Hinky Dink loved Colosimo and probably also saw him growing in status, he was like, sure, go for it. Open that brothel, bruh. Get yours. <laughs> Can you imagine how he actually said it? No, of course not. Can you imagine how he actually yeah, he probably said it? Look here, see? Yeah. It's your time, see? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then he was like, also, don't forget to bring me those Italian voters. Okay, bye. He was literally just down to give Jim whatever he wanted. Together, Jim and Madame Wifey opened a joint brothel with a woman on his arm and a business in his name and an actual political posi position on his resume, remember? Gone was Jim Colosimo. Big Jim was now a player in the game. These people and their nicknames, I tell you. That's his nickname? His first nickname. Okay, good. That's lame. <laughs> yeah, in my next line. But it still wouldn't be the last of his monikers. As Big Jim got more and more wealthy and opened more and more brothels, he went all in on that, in that, on that brothel boss persona. He started dressing in all white fancy suits and literally, like literally dangling gemstones and diamonds from his hands. He would like twirl them through his fingers which is the most 1902 <laughs> thing I've ever heard. Can you imagine? You just see him and he's just like playing with diamonds. It gangster. is so lame. <laughs> it's so like lame gangster though, you know? It's like a caricature of a gangster. Yes, yeah, like a comic book. Yes, yes. Like you picture them in the gangster suit and like the hat with diamonds. And he's got big fingers. It was also reported that Jim sported diamond studded shirts, diamond cufflinks, <laughs> Diamond belt buckles, diamond rings. You get the picture. And again, because we're just super on the nose in this era, Big Jim became Diamond Jim because the diamonds. <laughs> get it? It's not that good. Diamond Jim. That's his like final last. His that's final not that good. But neither is Bathhouse John. Bathhouse John it is good. It sounds cool, but not the origin of it is he literally worked at a bathhouse. It's yeah, I not know, that but great. like There's John, John is a word for the toilet. Bathhouse John. It's like, oh, it's good. The and then what was the other cool. one? Humperdink. Hinky dink. Hinky dink. <laughs> That's sick. I mean, it's like today, some people calling somebody shorty. It's like so obvious. If someone's short, you're going to call him shorty. Hinky dink's so much better than shorty. Yeah, but that's also because it's like 1890 when so? he gets that nickname. Diamond like, John. Diamond Jim isn't good. If it was Diamond Dave, I'd be like, all right, that's great. Yeah, Diamond Jim. It's To me, I just like, where's your creativity, guys? Well, the older men had good ones. Grey Wolves. Those, Lords so, of the Levy. Lords of the Levy and Grey Levy. Wolves. I said Levy. <laughs> yeah. Lords of the Levy and Grey Wolves are, are better. They're more subtle, right? But, like, there were, these guys' nicknames are, like, a little well, ridiculous. You know. So far, I like it. Lots of characters. Yeah, lots, lots of characters. Lots of things happening. By this time, within just a few years of opening that first brothel, Diamond Jim was now the proud owner of over 200 brothels. 
And he had also gotten involved in other rackets like gambling, etc. because Chicago. But by 1908, prostitution was still his strongest venture. He had a brothel for every budget, the ultra-cheap houses to the upscale brothels for Chicago's upper class. The two most popular brothels were the Saratoga and the Victoria, named after his wife, of course. Strangest relationship ever, but not necessarily in a bad way, because I feel like they kind of work, you know? And they know what it is. <laughs> like Power couple. Yeah. All right, now it's time to talk about black hand extortion. Have you heard about this? No. Okay, so... Diamond Jim was already very familiar with black hand extortion because he'd worked as a black hand extortion writer back in his early days of petty crimes. But black hand extortion was exactly what it sounds like, extortion, used between gangsters and criminals. And in Chicago, based on reports that I read, it looked like it was used by Italian immigrants mostly against other Italian immigrants. If that makes sense. So explain the black hand. So a black hander is the extortionist. And they would threaten violence against another criminal gangster or their family or their business, etc., unless they received money. This threat would be sent in letter form and it detailed the amount to be paid and the consequences if said amount was not paid. And it was always signed by the extortionist with a black hand, a handprint and black ink, which is so corny. How big is the letter? Like a handprint or like a fingerprint? A handprint. I saw a picture of it. That's wild. Yeah. So, so, prote- it's a protection racket. Yeah, but it's so lame. <laughs> okay, but it worked. It worked, but like, this, just like, instead of just writing a regular ass extortion letter, they're like, oh, it's not just an, I'm not being extorted. This is a black hand extortion letter. Ah, I think it's kind of tight. They put a black hand yeah, on I, it. Yeah, I think it's tight. That means I'm going to die if I don't pay. <laughs> I'm into it. When Diamond Jim made himself a millionaire by opening the most over-the-top restaurant and nightclub this part of the city at least had seen, Cafe Colosimo, he also solidified himself as the perfect target for black hand extortion. More on that in a minute, but first, Cafe Colosimo or Colosimo's Restaurant or just Colosimo's as it was known in the neighborhood, the the gaudy establishment allowed regular rich people to rub elbows with Chicago's finest criminals and gangsters, and it was incredibly popular. I read this article from the Chicago Tribune from, like, the early 1900s, which was dope, and they were saying, like, going to Colosimo's, you'd see judges and police officers and kindergarten teachers, and, like, everybody was at this place. They loved it. The front of the menu boasts that, quote, You'll never know spaghetti until you dine at Colosimo's. <laughs> I was like, Do they serve it in a bucket to go? Oh, God. <laughs> I hope not. You could get your hands on a plate of Colosimo's famous spaghetti a la Mike, amongst other menu offerings, including frog legs. Mmm. That's a, that's a fancy food back in the day. Yeah, for sure. Gross, though, still. You can get dinner nightly until the restaurant would would evolve into a nightclub. And it was like two rooms, I guess. So like when the restaurant was closed or dinner was over, they shut the lights and then the lights would come up in the other place. And then all the patrons would be escorted into this next building, whatever. That's sick. Super sick. And then the dancing would go on well into the morning. The place was fancy AF. Showgirls and singers would entertain alongside an orchestra that was actually like very good. And it's because... Diamond Jim wanted the best. Like, he wanted this restaurant to be, like, amazing. He already had, like, a different restaurant, but this was, like, his, his, like, his name is on the door, whatever. Yeah, he named it after himself. Yeah, and apparently there were, like, pictures of, like, or paintings of, like, nude women in clouds on the ceiling. It was, like, so (laughs) absurd. 
He spent most of his time supervising the restaurant operations, making sure everything from the menu to the music was perfect. All right, but like I said, Colosimo, though rolling in his riches, was a target. And in 1909, he received a black hand extortion letter. It was serious, too, because it was a threat against his life and a demand for a large sum of money. And Diamond Jim was not about to throw in the towel, so he paid the extortionist. What? Yeah, because he was like, shit. But he's a criminal. Yeah, but he's, he's, this is like the beginning of the beginning of this type of crime. He's gone soft? He's gone soft? He hasn't gone soft yet, but, spoiler alert, but he has like, he doesn't have henchmen. Like, he is just running the shit on his own with his wife. And he's like, oh, crap. So he pays the extortionist. Mm -hmm. He knows he has so much going on in the city. And he knows that everybody knows he's loaded. I mean, he walks around with diamonds all over his body. So he's like, okay, I'm just going to pay them and hope they leave me the hell alone. They never leave you alone. Yeah. I mean, do you think they did in this situation? (laughs) Of course not. Perhaps because they saw how easy it was to get the money from him is what I thought when I was reading it. I was like, duh, you paid them. What's stopping them from coming right back? Now, this made the Blackhanders more bold, and so Diamond Jim was soon enough receiving more and more extortion demands, with reports claiming that they were reaching like $50,000 at times. Realizing, and this is in 1909, okay? Realizing he would either keep having to pay up his ass to save his own ass, or chance his own ass, he knew that he needed some backup, some muscle. He had money, obviously, but he did not have protection. Every big-time criminal needs a right hand, after all. Yeah, what the fuck? I'm telling you, this is the beginning of the beginning. New York had their own gang shit going on already, like, already serious at this point, but... This sounds like amateur hour, dude. It was. This was the beginning (laughs) of the beginning. So you had all these brothels and Mm -hmm. shit, and a nightclub, but, Mm -hmm. like, nobody... There was no security. Because... The way that we know gangsters to be, right? Coming to collect or whatever. That wasn't the case. The only people doing that were the aldermen. There was no, like, real serious threat of, like, gangsters coming around. This was, like, how it started in Chicago. And it didn't even start with, like, real gangsters. These were just other Italian immigrants being like, you're doing great. You need to pay up. It's just criminals. Regular-ass criminals. And the Black Hand Extortion definitely started in Italy. So that's why they believe it was Italian immigrants, because they brought this from, like, their influence from the mafia in Italy, you know? They had seen it work in Italy. They're like, we're going to do this in America, in Chicago. There's a lot of Italians here. We can make this a thing. Mm. So Colosimo enlisted his wife's nephew, which in some reports says it was a distant cousin. And that's the other thing about this story. When you look up some of these details, they are different in every single source you read. So I used a lot of uh, information I could get from the Mob Museum. Regardless, he enlisted his wife's nephew, Johnny Torrio, who himself was a self-made and respected gangster from New York. And like I said, New York gangs were a different ballgame at this point. They were already like well on their way. To being like doing it right being the mob <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know so he was in one source i read that he was a few years younger and another source i read that he was a few years older but regardless colosimo wasn't quite sold on him because he was quote squat and chubby end quote which is what i read in like the mob the mob museum thing like he was like what's this guy gonna do for me you know he's like this squat chubby guy i'm picturing joe pesci yeah, that's exactly who I think you're supposed <laughs> right. to picture. But the actual pictures of him, 
I'm like, I don't really see that. He just looks like kind of like a small guy, but he was kind of violent. But to Diamond Jim, who's like this big, like big in stature, huge presence. This kid's like supposedly going to help save his life, you know, like, okay. Um, he still he was hopeful and obviously he didn't really have any other options. So with his life on the line, he decided to give the kid a chance. Torrio was the owner or Torrio was the owner of a saloon, a co-owner of a saloon called the Harvard Inn in Co- um, on Coney Island with fellow gangster Frankie Yale. I like that name, too. Frankie Yale. Did he go to Yale? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a lot of gangster on gangster crime going on in New York at the time. I think it's actually like a historical point called like the the gang street the street wars like the gangster street wars or something like that i feel like Mm. i've vaguely heard of it before but it was basically like gangsters were dying left right and center and the gangs were going up against each other before obviously before one gang ruled all but you know how all the there's so many different families and all that kind of crap so people were just dying all over the place so he thought maybe you know what a bit of time away might actually be good so he put in his leave. He asked for his vacation time from his co-owner, and he headed to the shy, where he assured Diamond J, you know what, I got this, buddy. You just sit back, play with your diamonds, I'll take care of it. And take care of it, he did. According to the Mob Museum's records, Torrio got in touch with the Blackhanders and arranged to meet them to exchange payment. This is baller. He rolled up in a horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> <laughs> But before the extortionist knew what was coming, two gunmen that Torrio had stashed in the back of the buggy just perked up, shooting all three Blackhanders yeah. dead, just like that. I think the guy, the third guy actually survived for a minute, but he was mortally wounded. So they all three did end up dying. Two of them just died instantly. And then Torrio galloped on back, having successfully sent a message to all that Diamond Jim was not one to be messed with. And from that day forward, he never received another <laughs> black hand extortion letter. Yeah, no shit. That's why I said it is amateur hour, right? Like, he, he's just like that. He has scared everyone from messing with him. What are you talking about? They just did the first drive-by. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is the first recorded drive-by in the city of Chicago. It's not even a drive-by. It's a gallop-by. <laughs> Uh, Diamond Jim was like, well, damn, look at you, you squat kid, chubby kid. Color me impressed. Colosmo presented Torrio with an offer at that point. He was like, join me in my criminal empire, full time as my second in command. And Torrio was like, eh, all right, why not? The gang wars were still raging in New York anyway. Chicago was a calmer criminal playground, so he literally was like, what harm can it do? He sold his share of the saloon to his buddy Yale back home, and he moved west with Diamond Jim, paying his expenses and even putting Torrio up in his and Victoria's brownstone. Fancy schmancy. The 1910s started real sweet for Colosimo. He was appointed to vice boss thanks to Alderman Hinky Dink. Remember him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that guy just keeps popping up, giving him higher titles. By this point, if he didn't have every law enforcement officer, court officials, even judges wrapped around his tiny little finger, he definitely did now. And the first ward officially became the richest area in the entire Midwest region. Business was booming. But he would soon be confronted with the inevitable, the disassembly of the vice districts the city had gotten away with for so long as pressure rose up to clean up Chicago. There was this commission that was appointed called the Chicago Vice Commission. Literally, it was like, please, please stop this. And then like people as the 
as like more and more businesses started coming into the city, you know, and people were commuting, they were getting way more complaints. They were like, <clears throat> there are prostitutes everywhere. There is crime everywhere. Yeah. You've got to do something about this. I it's bad it, for business. It also fits in with like the social movement of the time with like prohibition and like totally. this very strict mm-hmm. Christian outlook. Of, yeah. Like, and this is years before prohibition, but pro- prohibition does play a, a, a massive role in this story well, it's coming right but so it's like coming the pe- people's ideas of how to live is, are changing it's changing it's going from wild west to like civilized yeah and it's roles. like we're just trying to go to work here we're trying to build the city up what are you guys doing boring <laughs> yeah exactly Fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> amongst the brothels on the chopping block was actually the most like luxurious brothel arguably in the world okay it is so famous there's so many articles on this it's called the everly club and it was run by sisters Ada and Mina Everly. The sisters intended from the get-go for the club to be exclusively for only the rich, the upscale locale of Chicago, and beyond. So they turned away anybody that didn't meet their standards, even on opening day. And everything from the interior to the menu dripped in elegance. PBS's City of the Century detailed the decor as, quote, silk curtains, Damask easy chairs. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Uh, Oriental rugs, mahogany tables, gold-rimmed china and silver dinnerware, perfumed fountains in every room, a $15,000 gold-leafed piano for the music room, Mm. mirrored ceilings, a library filled with finely bound volumes, an art gallery featuring, featuring nudes in gold frames. No expense was spared, end quote. What is Damask again? Oh, I see. It looks like fancy schmancy old timey stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is gross. It's like doily. <laughs> it is very gross. <laughs> Not exactly like doily, but it would be like the doily would sit on top of a placemat with this pattern, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. The sisters employed only the most beautiful and compelling women they could find, and no matter how experienced they were, every woman chosen to join the Everly Club roster still had to undergo extensive training in culture and manners. They were not messing around. The sisters were also for sale, though patrons had to pay an extra 50 bucks if they wanted an experience with either Everly. And an extra 50 bucks was no small fee because the brothel was expensive as hell already. It also operated as a restaurant. And if you chose to indulge in the menu, you could eat your little rich heart out also for 50 bucks. And just to put it into perspective, that's over $1,500 today um, in today's money. Now, their club was also in the Levy District. So they, by far, definitely had, like, the best, the best establishment. Way better than anything Diamond Jim was bringing up, right? And it was wild just to read all of the articles and reports on this. But they opened in 1900, and by 1911, they were being shut down already. And being in the Levy District meant that, obviously, good old Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John oversaw their operations. When it was inevitably shut down in 1911, one of the girls were called to testify against Hinky Dink. Oh, no. When she intended on making her testimony public, Diamond Jim was like, I'm going to kill you. Like, literally, he went to her and was like, I will kill you. (laughs) Dead. (laughs) And so she shut her mouth, obviously. Though her testi- testimony would still reach the public, just not from her own, month, uh, her own mouth. And if the Everly Club found themselves in trouble, you better believe that Diamond Jim would see more and more of his far less fancy brothels on the chopping block too. I read a different article that 
basically said when they did start shutting down his stuff, they were like, it's not about the women. It's about the men that these brothels are attracting. And they were basically saying it that was in in reference to Diamond Jim's establishments. They were basically saying, like, you have gross places. We don't want this in our city. Like, at <clears> least the Everly Club was bringing in, like, Yeah, but they're shutting that down, too. They're shutting that down. So the, the whole point is, like, if, if we shut that down, you have no chance. Right. Um, I'm definitely going to do a separate episode on the Everly Club because it – like maybe just like a, a, a mini deep dive because there's some really crazy things that happen there. Yeah, I bet. And really good stories. And some of like, I don't know, it's just wild. Some really like funny tidbits and just the people that went there, like princes and just like really good stories. But I thought maybe I would like pop that in after we wrap this story up. Okay. Now back to Diamond Jim, okay? Of course, he still had his hands in other business ventures, a couple restaurants, including his famous Colosimos with their famous spaghetti, and still plenty of illegal brothels still in operation. He was a busy man throughout the 1910s, and as 1920 approached, his second-in-command, Torrio, was pretty damn busy too. In 1919, Torrio decided that he needed another man to help with all of his duties, as he was at this point not only Colosimo's right hand, but also the male madam of Colosimo's prostitution empire, managing all of the brothels thanks to his natural talent for business and finance. Colosimo's like, you know what you're doing, which makes sense because he co-owned that saloon in, in New York. He obviously knew how to run business. And Colosimo's like, you're really good at this. How about you take over this? I got a lot of other crap going on. <laughs> And with Prohibition looming, Torrio saw a new opportunity in the world of bootlegging. There was just lots of work to do. So when he got a letter from his old buddy and former saloon co-owner, remember Frankie Yale? Frankie mm-hmm. Yale. Inquiring if Torrio could help out the young bartender of the Harvard Inn, his old saloon, who'd gotten into a fight with someone that you definitely don't want to get into a fight with, and now needed to get the hell out of Dodge, with a job in Chicago, Torrio was like, sure, send him over. So this young kid that Frankie L was like, he's a good kid. He pissed somebody off. He cut, I guess he like cut up a man's face, I read in a report. But this man that he cut his face was like clearly a gangster. And he was like, this kid's gonna die. He's a good kid. I like him. Please help him. And Torrio was like, you know what? I've been thinking about getting into this whole bootlegging business. I got, you know, uh, male madam duties. I got to run all of... Colosimo's day-to-day stuff, send him over, I'll help him. And that guy's name was Al Capone. Torrio welcomed the kid into his headquarters, a four-story building Colosimo had bought for Torrio to run his affairs that boasted, besides his swanky office, a gambling house, and a saloon called the Four Deuces. Dope. That was reportedly also a brothel, because, duh. Yeah. <laughs> Tur- yeah, after all these things are getting shut down, they're like, let's open a brothel! Torrio told the newcomer he could get to work right away working the door of the brothel, and the kid was like, well, all right then. I can make this work. Wide-eyed and ready to get criming, Alphonse Capone I knew home. it! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh. yeah. And that's where we'll stop for this. Um, but let me just tell you. Is this a two-parter? Oh, hell yeah. Is this like a four-parter? I'm hoping it's just two parts. <clears throat> Al Capone's life. Listen, I know he was a bad man. But he is so dope. Hey, he's sick. He ended up in Florida. Yeah. Like all the best people. And he has the best gangster nickname. Scarface. Yeah. He's just, he's so dope. And I I say dope, not like I want to, you know, glorify his crimes. I just mean in the world of gangsters, beside him and what's the other guy who disappeared and then everyone said he wasn't dead, but he was dead. 
Jimmy Hoffa. Oh. Aside from Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, he wasn't that cool. No, Al he, Capone's way But cooler. I just mean in, ter- in terms of notoriety. In term, J- Jimmy Hoffa was violent AF. Jimmy Hoffa is buried under like the New Jersey Turnpike. That's what people say. Yeah. But remember how he just disappeared and nobody knew what happened to him? Yeah. Like, aside from Jimmy Hoffa, who do we still talk about the most? It's Al Capone, right? I mean, obviously you have the Gambinos and all that stuff and they're all like still talked about. But Al Capone is like in a league of his own. No, he wasn't yeah. even in the New York scene. He was He was the Chicago outfit. But this story is wild because uh, Jim Colosimo started the, the Chicago outfit without trying to start the Chicago outfit, you know? He birthed, he created like the shell of the Chicago outfit. Alphonse Capone, still just Alphonse at that point, a 19-year-old kid came and was like, I like what's happening here. And he just was a different species of human. He just took it and ran with it, you know? He took it and ran. And when I say ran with it, like I mean Steve like Jobs at Apple. five minutes after getting into <laughs> Chicago and shit gets wild, like immediately. Um, it's such a great story. And I'm so excited to like talk about the inevitable downfall of Colosimo because obviously we know who ends up ruling everything. It's Al Capone. But this time of the Chicago is... It's next level. It's so interesting and so cool. And there's so many mini tangents I could go on and just about the brothel life and different stories from different brothels and just different stories of like little things that happened during this Wild West lawless time that I feel like we could spawn into other things. But yeah. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. I like that one. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back in probably just a couple of days with part two. But yeah, I mean, I love the mom. <laughs> I love talking about the mob, you know. I don't love what they did, but the history of the mob is just absolutely wild. All right. You excited for part two? Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, guys. Have you written it? What? I started to, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's good good stuff. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.